Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. And this is the BioEats World Journal Club, where every Thursday we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. And today, we're talking about anti-antibiotics. Anti-antibiotics? That's a weird double negative. What on earth are those? It's definitely a counterintuitive idea. On the one hand, we want antibiotics to hit their target, the pathogenic bacteria that cause disease. But on the other hand, the use of antibiotics comes with the risk of developing antibiotic resistance, where the bacteria rapidly evolve to basically become immune to the drugs designed to kill them. This resistance can arise in the bacteria that are being targeted, meaning doctors have to find new ways to treat the infection, but also in the bacteria that harmlessly and even beneficially live in our gastrointestinal tract. Critically, if these gut bacteria become resistant, they can spread this resistance throughout a hospital setting via the dreaded fecal-oral contamination. So today's episode is about how we can protect those harmless and beneficial bacteria from the antibiotics while still treating the infection. So basically a way to deliver antibiotics with all the good effects, but without the bad? Exactly. And my guest, Professor Andrew Reed of Penn State University, has found a way to do just that, preventing resistance evolution by repurposing an old drug. Our conversation covers the insights that led to this discovery and the fundamentally novel nature of this anti-antibiotic therapy. And we kick off with Andrew describing the growing threat of antibiotic resistance. So the issue is that most of last century were able to keep ahead of antimicrobial resistance by inventing new antibiotics. But now that's become a very expensive process and the economics are not good because typically the new drugs are kept back for the very hard cases. So there's not a huge market. They're typically expected to be quite cheap. And on top of that, the bugs themselves have become resistant in ways that can take out whole classes of compounds. For example, many bacteria have evolved efflux pumps where they pump the drugs out of the cell And so they can pump any drug out of the cell, even antibiotics that we haven't yet discovered. They're already resistant to them. So there's a perfect storm of very significant problems. Yeah. When people talk about antimicrobial resistance, it's easy initially to think of, oh, yes, that'll be really bad for bacterial infections if we don't have these drugs. But it really impacts our entire way that we do healthcare. To lose the ability to use antibiotics would be an absolute disaster, really. That's right. I think that we don't really fully appreciate just how much modern medicine needs antimicrobial drugs. 
And we've also been through, at least in rich countries now, many decades of not worrying about infections. Well, those things are being seriously challenged now. You know, the numbers of people that are dying in the US from antibiotic-resistant infections is rising. Very conservative estimates suggest, you know, 30,000, 40,000, but it may be much higher than 100,000 because it's often not mentioned as the cause of death. Just to put that in perspective, that is, even at the bottom end, it is in the line of people dying in car crashes. But the car crash death rate is dropping because of improvements in technology. The antimicrobial resistance problem is growing because the bugs are spreading. So this is getting a bigger and bigger problem. So let's talk evolutionarily. Like, How does antimicrobial resistance arise in an individual bacteria? And then how does it spread in a bacterial population and then in a healthcare setting? Yeah, the first thing to recognize is that antibiotics are actually things that often are secreted by bacteria against each other. And so the bugs have become very adept at evolving them. So it's a very natural process. It's been accelerated by medicine, but a very natural process. An individual bacterium can become resistant either by mutational processes. For example, it might be that the drug is binding to a particular part of the bug and mutations in that part mean changes shape slightly and the drug can't bind anymore. Or in the case of many bacteria, they can acquire resistance genes from other bacteria horizontally. So a gene from an already resistant bacteria can end up in the genome of a bacteria that it previously was not. And then, of course, that bug replicates, especially has a huge advantage if it's in a drug-treated patient because you know, all its competitors are being killed by the drugs and it is now able to replicate and fill up the space freed up by the death of all its ancestors and fellow bacteria. And so it can rise up in very large numbers in an individual patient and in many instances transmit on and to other patients, other people. So the evolutionary processes move forward. Mm -hmm. I think about antimicrobial resistance. I think about hospitals and healthcare settings, but antimicrobial resistance is actually as old as bacteria themselves are because they're always competing with each other, always trying to take over a space. And so the way that we use antimicrobials is really a natural process, just supercharged. So what are some of our current methods for preventing the evolution of antibiotic resistance? Well, the most standard approaches are to prevent infection in the first place and to prevent spread. So infection prevention is one of the you know, key and oldest approaches here, because if you don't have infections, it's irrelevant about the antimicrobial resistance. If though there is an infection with antimicrobial resistance, the standard practice at the moment is to switch drugs. So to figure out what the resistance is and then to switch to another antibiotic and hope that finishes it off. In some circumstances, people will combine the drugs together. But if you use the right combination of drugs for the right durations and so forth, then resistance is prevented. The problem is that when it doesn't work, you end up with multi-drug resistance. So the bug becomes resistant to drug A, so you switch to B, and then it becomes resistant to B, and you switch to C. You know, if you eventually run out, and sometimes you're stuck with drugs that are you know, very toxic to a person and we prefer not to use. I mean, and part of the problem here is that evolution is a very, very effective process, and adaptation to life's challenges is what biology is all about. So in this particular article, you are looking at the interaction of a particular bacteria and a particular antibiotic. The name of the bacterium is Enterococcus faecium. One of the interesting things is that this bacteria already has resistance to one drug. So it's already resistant to vancomycin. Can you describe to me what is known about the dynamics between Enterococcus faecium 
vancomycin and the antibiotic that you're talking about in this paper, which is daptomycin? Yes, so ephesium is a very common bug in hospitals and for many years was very effectively treated by vancomycin. In the 80s and 90s, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, which we now call VRE, became more and more common in the States and in other parts of the rich world because of the amount of vancomycin being used in the hospitals. So I think the important issue here is that the VRE normally lives in gastrointestinal tract without causing any symptom, and it could be in you or me now, but in the gut, it doesn't cause any disease. But if it gets into the bloodstream or into an open wound, soft tissue infections, then it can be extremely problematic. Nowadays, there are two drugs, daptomycin and linazolid, that are the drugs of choice for treating vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. So resistance spreading to either of those will be very problematic. We discovered in University of Michigan Hospital in Ann Arbor, as had been found in other hospitals, that since daptomycin started being widely used for VRE, daptomycin resistance began to spread in the hospital. So that was threatening one of only two remaining drugs, leaving only one. If we lost daptomycin, we'd only have one drug left. And the other one, linazolid, there is resistance around to that now as well. So you know, there's nothing more in the pipeline at the moment. And so we need daptomycin and linazolid to keep working. So ephesium is a common bacteria that, you know, we were using vancomycin to treat and that worked really well until resistance to vancomycin arose. Now we have this fairly common vancomycin resistant enterococcus strain, and we're now using daptomycin to treat it. But now we're seeing daptomycin resistance arise. So this pair, this vancomycin-resistant ephesium and daptomycin is the focus of this paper. What was the question that you were setting out to address with this work? In 2014, I went to University of Michigan Hospital for six months with my collaborator there, Bob Woods, who's an infectious disease physician who also has a PhD in evolutionary biology. And while talking about the different infections and different treatment regimens, this daptomycin issue popped up. So a person has a VRE infection that's responding well to daptomycin, and then the daptomycin stops working. And what's happened there is that evolution has taken place within that patient. So very striking if you're an evolutionary biologist. We then did a lot of work looking for how often that happened. And in fact, most of the time, people get their resistance from somebody else. The spread is fecal-oral, so... The resistant bugs are shared from the gut into the environment in feces. And if hygiene is not perfect, then it can be passed on to other individuals. And so Bob and I started talking about how could we stop it? How could we prevent the daptomycin resistance popping up in a patient? And how could we prevent it spreading in a hospital? And in my head, that's the same question as asking, how can we make this drug work forever? So there are two ways that a patient can get daptomycin-resistant, vancomycin-resistant ephesium. One is to have resistance evolve in their own gut when they're treated with daptomycin. And the other is to acquire a resistant infection in the hospital. The idea here is that if you can prevent the evolution of the former, you can prevent the acquisition in the latter. So basically trying to prevent resistance from arising in the first place so that it can't spread. So can you explain to me further this important distinction between what is happening in the gut versus what is happening in the bloodstream? A bloodstream infection with VRE is very serious 
and life-threatening. And so what happens in those circumstances is daptomycin is given intravenously. It's a very potent drug, and so it rapidly kills the bugs in the bloodstream. And that's what we do want. But a small proportion of it leaks into the gut. And when it gets into the gut, it then starts to select for resistance in the gut populations of VRE. Now, those populations aren't causing you any problems, but when you shed those bugs, if they become daptomycin resistance, you're now spreading daptomycin resistance in the hospital. So we have this compartmentalization. We have an area we need it to work, the bloodstream, and an area we don't want it to work, the gut. Because if it's in the gut, it will select for resistance and then be spread by feces into the hospital. Right. Do you want to maintain the efficacy of daptomycin in the bloodstream where there's this life-threatening infection, but to prevent the spread of daptomycin-resistant VRE, you want to keep the daptomycin from getting into the gut, which is where resistance evolves and can spread out. That's exactly it. Now that we have that background on the critical nature of antimicrobial resistance, what our current methods are for addressing it, why these aren't sufficient, and this interaction between Enterococcus faecium and these two antibiotics, let's move into the methods and results of your study. You first demonstrated that this systemic administration of daptomycin led to the development of resistance in the gut bacteria in both mice and humans. And then you wanted to find a way to protect those gut bacteria from the daptomycin so that they don't become this reservoir basically for daptomycin resistance. How did you think about separating those two compartments, the GI tract and the bloodstream? Yeah, so Bob and I were discussing this issue of how do we allow the activity of the antibiotic in the bloodstream, but prevent the activity of the antibiotic in the gut. But then Bob had this terrific insight that an existing drug, cholestyramine, was an old drug now used for bile acids, but it used to be for cholesterol reductions. It was known to interfere with antibiotic activity in the gut. And so maybe we could use that to our advantage to mop up any of the antibiotic that gets out of the bloodstream and into the gut. And because cholesterol is not absorbed, the drug will still be able to work in the bloodstream. I find that just so impressive that you, you know, it'd be like, oh, I know about this one drug-drug interaction, which is normally considered a real hindrance. You know, you don't want your multiple medications that you have a patient on to interact negatively in this way, but to actually use that interaction now in this beneficial way to protect the gut bacteria from the antibiotics so that they don't develop resistance. The other thing that really surprises me in retrospect, but we just guessed at the cholestyramine concentration we should try in a mouse. The postdoc that did the work, Val Morley, you know, she's very, very talented and very hardworking. And the guess at this was kind of like, well, how much cholestyramine can we get into a mouse diet? Now I know about dosing regimens. It's just absolutely amazing that we could stop the evolution dead first time. Yeah. It's almost scary to think that if you hadn't happened to land on that dose initially, you know, you might've tried some lower doses and it didn't work. And you thought this idea doesn't work, but because of that, just good scientific luck, you were able to pursue this idea and really figure out how to use it effectively. Having been a scientist where nothing worked right from the get go. I, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. We had our failures since, and we did try this with vancomycin and it completely does not work with vancomycin. So 
we happened upon the right drug drug interaction and we guessed at the right dosing and yeah amazing so the idea is that cholestyramine binds to and inactivates daptomycin and since it's delivered orally essentially directly into the gi tract and doesn't cross into the blood that this would be how you could protect the bacteria from the daptomycin so that they are not exposed to it. They're not even really seeing it. So it's not driving the evolution of daptomycin resistance and also still preserves daptomycin's function in the bloodstream. But how did you test this hypothesis? Yeah. So we've got ourselves an animal model now where we know that daptomycin will drive adaptomycin resistant VRE in the gut. So we've got our readout. We created adaptomycin resistant mutants and put those together with the sensitive ones into a mouse gut. And if you do that and you don't treat with daptomycin, you never see the daptomycin resistance. Okay, the sensitive ones just outcompete the resistant ones and nothing happens. However, if you then treat the mouse with daptomycin, that kills off all the sensitive ones in the gut. The bacterial population rapidly becomes dominated by resistant ones. What we did was to fed half the mice the cholesteramine, and that process just stopped. So we knew the resistance was in there because we put it in. If there's cholesteramine there, the sensitive ones just do their stuff, and the resistant ones don't go anywhere because they just aren't as good as the sensitive ones unless there's daptomycin in. So the cholesteramine inactivates the daptomycin, stops the selection pressure, stops driving evolution, and hey, presto, you don't have resistance. You know, the reason why not all bacteria are drug resistant is because it costs bacteria something to carry drug resistance often. There's a cost to being resistant. In your model, what you saw is in a mouse gut, if there are sensitive bacteria and resistant bacteria, the sensitive bacteria can outcompete the resistant bacteria and the resistant bacteria aren't able to take over basically. But if you give daptomycin, now they have this big advantage and they're able to outcompete and the sensitive bacteria are all eliminated. When you gave the cholestyramine, the sensitive bacteria were basically able to continue to outcompete and to maintain their dominance in the community basically. I think that's really interesting that even though you had already preceded resistance, resistance wasn't able to spread because you had basically blocked the daptomycin from entering the population. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're using the natural forces that go into preventing resistance naturally, right? The reason everything's not drug resistant is because it costs the bugs something. And so what we've done there is just exploit that. And the sensitive bugs are very good at overgrowing the resistant bugs unless the sensitive ones have been killed by the antibiotics. And so we use that process to stop the evolution. We use the natural competition. It is actually one of the only, perhaps the only natural force we have working for us is this competitive suppression. We're utilizing that to stop these resistant bugs. So in my head, it's terrific that you can have the resistant bugs in there and you use the drug and it hasn't resulted in the emergence of resistance. So it's just what you want. You want drug therapy without drug resistance. That's win-win. Okay, so now that we have covered the results of your paper, how you were able to use this old bile acid binding drug that had this, you know, often considered bad drug-drug interaction to actually prevent the development and spread of drug resistance, which allowed you to give 
antibiotics without promoting antibiotic resistance. Let's talk about what the next steps are for taking this research from paper to practice. How do you implement something like this in the clinic? Well, obviously, we're still refining things in the mouse model, optimizing. For example, we don't know how at the moment how early you have to take the cholestyramine in order to get this effect. And we don't know how long after you've stopped the daptomycin you have to keep going for. The optimizing is really important because it is possible that we could make the situation worse. If we don't inactivate enough daptomycin, we could make the resistance problem worse. So you could end up with more bugs coming out and more resistance. So we really got to get it right. We also need to show that it works on a variety of different VRE strains, and it should be very generic. But as reviewers have pointed out to us, we've got to show that. And then, of course, the question is, what would happen in a person? So we need to know for this group of patients, what's the target concentrations and when is that daptomycin appearing in the gut and how long for and so forth. And that information will then allow us to optimize the therapy, the cholesterol therapy. Yeah, and then the next step after that, take a group of patients who are getting intravenous daptomycin and give them some cholesterol and see if we can stop the evolution. I really love this idea of the adjuvant therapy where you're giving a secondary compound to prevent the evolution of antibiotic resistance so that you can still use the antibiotics. Do you think that usage of preventing resistance during bloodstream infections is enough to really move the needle on antibiotic resistance throughout the hospital setting? Because it feels like to me, there's a lot of different antimicrobial resistant bugs that are, you know, not necessarily bloodstream infections. Is that true? Yes, that is true. There are many sources of selection for resistance. You know, farm animal uses obviously concern community use of antibiotics, treating viral infections with antibiotics for respiratory tract infections. All of those things are problems, absolutely, in the CDC's list where the resistance is a real challenge. The resistance is a challenge when it's a bloodstream infection. And many of the serious ones, Mersus, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, are of the sort we're talking about. They live harmlessly in your gut. And intravenous antibiotics only have their effect on the transmission population when they get into the gut. And so if we can stop that spread by stopping the evolution within the gut, then we can solve the problem for many different bugs. What we're talking about here is can we solve the evolution that's driven by the correct medical use of antibiotics used intravenously for these very serious hospital infections? Right, right. This is preventing antibiotic resistance in the situation where if you get antibiotic resistance, it is the worst possible case to get it because you've got a very serious bloodstream infection. And so you are preserving your antibiotic use at the time when it is most critical to human health. Yeah, exactly. You want to be able to use these antibiotics intravenously at speed, at pace. You can lose a person very fast. So we want to, be able to preserve that use while stopping the spread of these things in the hospital. And this has the potential to do this. So what are the new opportunities that this work provides? It's a completely new thing here. It's not even a drug in a normal sense, right? It's against evolution because we're not trying to kill bacteria. We're not trying to make the patient better by killing bacteria. It's an adjuvant anti-evolution drug. And that's got an interesting question. You know, the FDA and normal clinical trials are not set up with evolution as your final readout. We are in interesting new territory here, I think, in terms of how we develop, test, and go forward with these things, where the evolutionary process is being targeted directly, not the bug and not the patient health. All those things are being targeted, but indirectly. Really, the bug itself wouldn't even notice this thing. 
Right. Most of what we've talked about in terms of strategies to address antimicrobial resistance are addressing the bugs. It's killing the bugs through better sanitation, or it's killing the bugs with other antimicrobial drug combinations. But in this case, you're not doing anything to the bacteria. It's like an anti-drug drug. Exactly. So we call these things anti-antibiotics. The whole point of this is totally directed at evolutionary processes, not the bug. And so that's why they can work forever, right? Because cholestyramine will never select for resistance to cholestyramine. The bug itself will never find a solution. It doesn't need to find a solution because it's not being harmed. So really and truly, if you get the combination and use them correctly for hospital-acquired infections, the existing drugs now could be made to work forever with an anti-antibiotic. It's very cool. <laughs> yeah, it's totally, it's, it's totally cool. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Sure, my pleasure. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.